Welcome, everybody, to another special episode of the Into the Impossible podcast featuring today's guest, Ben Shapiro. Now, before you hit unsubscribe, unfollow, and send me a poisonous pen message, please note that this conversation, like all my conversations with Noam Chomsky and Larry Tribe and Eric Topol, as well as with Ben and his cohorts at the Daily Wire and elsewhere, is non-political. I don't get into politics. I don't think politics is particularly interesting. I've never had a desire to be a politician or to target them. I think they do a great job. I've hosted the mayor of San Diego uh, and I've hosted uh, uh, other people, but as always to look at their non-political aspects of their life, because I think that's more interesting as a scientist. So today we got into many, many things. You won't believe it when we got into uh, Ben's uh, beliefs or lack thereof about space travel and even on extraterrestrial intelligence. So you won't want to miss that or any other portion of this conversation. Trust me, I think you'll be glad you came along for the ride. And now sit back and enjoy this wide-ranging interview with none other than Ben Shapiro. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Welcome, everybody, to what will surely be one of my many great plunges and subscriber counts as I bring on very rarely uh, political figures. But as I always say, astronomy, I got into it because there are no Republican constellations. There are no Democratic asteroids. Uh, and I like a politics-free zone. So actually, today, we're going to talk with my yeah, some say we're, we we look alike. We were separated at birth. I'm sorry to hear, tell you that, Ben. Uh, we're talking with Ben Shapiro, proprietor, er, editor emeritus, The Daily Wire, proprietor of The Ben Shapiro Show. And Ben, how are you doing this fine season? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there, but I'm not in California like you, so better than you. <laughs> well, you're, you're welcome back anytime. Your, your, your money and your presence is welcome back anytime. Uh, <clears throat> so we're going to talk about a lot of things today, but I wanted to let you know this is our special Erev pre-Yom Kippur special. We did one last year at this time, and this one will be out uh, on the eve of the holiest day of the year, which you told me last year is your favorite day on the calendar. Is that still true, Ben, that Yom Kippur is your favorite day on the calendar? You know, it's one of those things where philosophically, yes, and then in practice, no. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a big fan of fasting. I do like food, but uh, the, the in in theory, yeah. I mean, the, the idea that you get to have your sins relieved by God and that you get to face up to those and spend all day, you know, dealing with existential questions is really kind of an amazing thing. So, uh, philosophically, yes. Um, but about eleven o'clock in the morning, when I haven't had anything to eat or drink, and it's only been you know twelve hours or fourteen hours, and now I've got another ten hours to go. About that time, I start to have doubts. <laughs> That's right. I mean, if you like fasting that much, you can do it for me, or you know. I can recommend a colonoscopy prep. That that might be uh, more. Oh man, so I'm Gedalia, and then this one it's like two and two and three weeks. It's just it's good times. <laughs> well, we're we're going to talk about Judaism because uh, your latest book, uh, which which is your 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 sixth in one year, uh, is called the Authoritarian Moment. And I can judge. Uh, I'm holding it up to the camera now. I got an advanced copy. Thank you very much to Emma and all your producers over there. Uh, but I also got the real copy, and uh, the reason was I wanted to ask you and play a favorite game, the game that we're never supposed to do in life as authors, judge a book by its cover. So Ben, rumor has it uh, that the book is partially inspired by George Orwell, who we talked about last year. You remember we talked about Animal Farm and whether you'd uh, trade your beautiful tail as, as Benjamin the donkey did uh, for a shorter tail and not have to have the flies. Uh, tell me, what is the inspiration for this title, this cover design? Uh, where'd you come up with it? What's the uh, backstory behind it? 
And so, so the authoritarian moment, the title just came up because I, I was thinking about the, uh, the the title of the authoritarian mind by Theodore Adorno uh, was probably the the sort of basis for it. So there was an idea by Theodore Adorno uh, as a philosopher in mid 20th century uh, who argued that basically there was a certain mindset that tended toward the authoritarian. It turns out that that his description of that mindset was not particularly accurate, but there were other sociologists who came around later who had sort of a slightly more uh, accurate description of that. But it seemed to me that that everybody these days is calling themselves authoritarian. And so I thought that it would be worthwhile examining you know, sort of where the threats to freedom lie. And obviously, look, I'm a conservative. So uh, I think the, the there are certainly people on the right who are authoritarian, but the, the threats, as the subtitle suggests, uh, are predominantly institutionally from the left at this point. So I'm not going to pretend that the book is a bipartisan examination into authoritarianism. It certainly is not. Um, and uh, the, the jackboot uh, on the front is obviously supposed to be reminiscent of that sort of 1984 imagery, that, that there is the, the boot treading on the human face forever. And I think that a lot of people, actually, this is bipartisan. I think a lot of people uh, in, in all facets of life at this point do feel as though there are other people who are coming for them because of their opinion. That's a really dangerous thing. Yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, the, you know, I always have this, this paradox when I read your books because, you know, they're, they're intricately researched, they're, uh, they're decisively argued, and uh, each one, the footnotes alone, could be a PhD thesis uh, here at the University of California or elsewhere. Uh, and so it is extremely thoroughly researched. Um, and yet, I always have this dichotomy because I always want to ask the questions my audience would want to know. <laughs> besides uh why are you having your younger more attractive brother on uh and that is uh, and that is you know really to do with um the fact that you and i share a religion uh you are uh orthodox and orthodoxy as i take it uh we are supposed to have a king we are supposed to have a king in heaven we're supposed to have an authority above us uh that we look up to and maybe it's that there's only one but um how do you resolve this paradox that you submit willingly to the authority of god uh, and do so happily. I, I understand you serve God with joy, right? So how do you reconcile these two dichotomies? Why don't you serve, uh, you know, uh, Gavin Newsom? Well, you're not here to serve Gavin Newsom, but, but why <laughs> don't you serve, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden with, with authority? Because, look, this is the will, and we believe also that God, we pray for Joe Biden every every week of, 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 of the year, right, in synagogue. So anyway, how do you reconcile these two sides, the authority uh, so, of, that you submit to and then the politicians that you refuse to submit? Or- so obviously, I think the divine authority predates any authority to man. And, and there is this belief even in the Bible, obviously, when it talks about Davidic kingship. Uh, obviously, in the book of Deuteronomy, when it talks about you're going to have a king, it says you're going to regret having a king. And not only that, the king is supposed to write his own Torah scroll because he's supposed to be reminded of his moral obligations throughout the books of the prophets. Uh, the king is constantly being remanded by his uh, reprimanded rather by various prophets. Right, David himself is reprimanded uh, by Nathan. Uh, Saul is reprimanded reprimanded by Samuel. Uh, there, there is this sort of check and balance system, even with regard to kingship, which is the most rudimentary form of top down rule. There is this belief that the king is supposed to be subjected to certain higher moral standards. Now, the, the belief that you ought to be you know, subject to a god in heaven also relies on your willingness to submit to a system of thought. And, and what, what I mean by that is that there are, very, there are a lot of, I'd say, differing strains even within Judaism as to who you listen to and why you listen to them. I tend to be much more Maimonidean in my approach. So Maimonides was very Aristotelian in his approach to religion. It was his belief that the commandments did have a rationale behind them that could be understood by human reason, even if we hadn't actually figured all of them out yet. 
And so there was a real natural law component to what Maimonides was talking about that really mirrors sort of the Thomistic view of Thomas Aquinas at the same time in the Christian world. Uh, and so it makes it a lot easier to say, listen, I'm, I agree with the, the authority of the Bible, but I also agree with the authority of the Bible because it tends to reflect the, the demands of the real world and reason interacting with those demands. Uh, and so, you know, you don't have to, I think there's a vision of religion that religion is basically you throw out your individual human reason in favor of people telling you what to do. And the Maimonidean approach says that's not really the case, which is why religion and practice of religion, particularly in Judaism, was a common law sort of practice that has evolved pretty radically over time. I mean, there, there are famous sections of the Talmud where there's a, the, the, maybe the most famous section in all the Talmud. There's one section where there's a rabbi who goes up against a majority of his fellows in the study house on a particular issue. And he's obviously right. And he says, I, he calls on heaven. He calls on the walls of the, of the Beit Midrash, of the, um, the place that they're learning to Be. lean if he is right. Uh, he calls on the river to reverse itself if he's right. It does. He calls on the, the, uh, a voice to come down from heaven if he's right. And all of these things happen. And then one of the other rabbis says, right, but none of those are authorities, right? We don't rely on the walls of the Beit Midrash to determine whether a right or a river or even a, a voice from heaven, you know, it, it's left in our hands, right? Which is some of the verbiage in, in Deuteronomy as well, is that it's not in heaven, it's here for you. Uh, and so that means the interaction of the human, the interaction of reason and revelation lies at the core of, of my faith. So if you get completely rid of reason, then I think you end up with theocracy. And if you get completely rid of revelation, I think that you end up at, at sort of a Nietzschean nihilism. What do you say to those who, you know, witnessing that tragedy and the um, you know, man-made tragedy in Afghanistan say, well, you know, it's, it's great to speak about these as 8th century, you know, barbarians and thugs, uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but wouldn't you like that? I mean, wouldn't you like not an authoritarian theocracy, but the rules of Judaism are pretty proscribed, as you say, as you talk about. Um, you know, would you submit to, uh, if we could somehow revivify you know, all the conditions needed to restore messianic times, et cetera. Would you then submit to an authoritarian, uh, to a government, not not just to God, obviously, but to, you know, to uh, a basically semi-theocratic form of worship? Of course, you you would believe it's benevolent, and as many would. Would you submit to that? I mean, is that something you would look forward to? Let me put it that way. Uh, I mean, I think that to get into sort of the halachic details of, you know, what messianic kingship would look like, uh, is probably beyond the scope of what we're talking about. Suffice it to say that messianic kingship, even even Davidic kingship, the amount of centralized authority that was actually brought to bear to actually enforce a lot of the laws that were on the books is pretty limited, mm -hmm. which is why a lot of the punishments, even in the Bible itself, uh, punishment is, for example, excommunication, right? right? The, the, you're, you're cut off, right? Social, basically social uh, refusal, um, or you have a situation where, where it will say that your line is cut off, which is really between you and God. It really isn't between you and the compulsive government and what the government can compel you to do. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's sort of a lot of commentaries about what the government could allow you to do. But listen, I'm, I'm not a fan of kingship. I mean, I make this pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, in, in, and by the way, I don't think Samuel was a fan of kingship. <laughs> the, the notion uh, that, that the only way this can be done uh, is through uh, a monarchy. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of forms of monarchy. Right? I mean, there's a, there's a British form of monarchy where the king doesn't have ultimate authority. Uh, and then there is the you know, theocratic monarchy where the king has all authority. So mm -hmm. I think that these are, I'm, I'm, again, I'll, I'll rely on Rambam here. I'll rely on Maimonides and I'll say that when the Messiah comes, I guess we'll discuss it. Um, but you know, the the my ideal form of government does not involve one person at the top of a government telling everybody else what to do without any check or balance. And I don't think the Taurus does either, actually. Right. Well, <clears throat> just to let you know, uh, I get dibs on the Messiah after he's guest on your show, Ben. <laughs> um, I had on recently uh, Dr. Eric Topol, 
America's doctor, I think, if, if it's not uh, the uh, first lady. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, he was, you know, kind of uh, very, very uh, of two minds that the government has a very strong place. And in fact, you know, he advocated famously for, you know, the withholding of the release of the, of the Pfizer and, and other trial vaccine trials. Uh, but he's obviously, you know, he said to me, he's not in favor of lying to the public to even to advance a good goal. In other words, uh, have more mammograms. You shouldn't overstate the the amount of cancer risk, for example. Uh, and yet, I see you as a very early uh, vaccine advocate. Uh, you know that was uh, very clear. That was actually a very very important, I think, uh, moral lesson to many people that follow you. Um, so, how do you know? What's the rubric? Speaking as a professor, what's the rubric? How do you know when to trust a, a, a governmental uh, edict, uh, a decree, and to submit to it? Because I think we we have to submit to it at some level. I think Viktor Frankl said there should be a West Coast statue of responsibility, not just the statue of, of liberty. So how do you know? What's the rubric to know when a government edict is good or not? I mean, they have to actually show you the evidence. And uh, this is, I think, my problem with the public health bureaucracy throughout this pandemic is that uh, you had, I mean, Dr. Patrick's admitted that not only did he not show people the evidence that he was effectively lying to the American public repeatedly to achieve his goals. He did that on herd immunity, where he said, well, I, I thought that the American public was willing to withstand this level of herd immunity. So I said that percentage, then I shifted the percentage. He did it on masks early on, instead of saying that masking is effective and then saying, but we need to make sure that our health providers have it first. Instead of doing that and asking for some shared sacrifice, he instead said that nobody needs a mask. And he did it with regard to masking with regard to the vaccine. So post-vaccine, but before Delta, he was like, well, you definitely have to mask after you've had the vaccine. And then two weeks later, he shifted it. Mm -hmm. We heard from public health officials who are not Fauci in the middle of the pandemic repeatedly that if you were out protesting against lockdown, this was very bad and spread the virus. But if you were out protesting George Floyd, this was very good and was and was necessary because racism was a public health crisis. Uh, and so when, when you have people saying that kind of stuff, I think it's very difficult to create the sort of institutional trust that's necessary to call upon. It just isn't there. There's a reservoir of trust that you need to call upon sometimes. And when the reservoir is empty, nobody's going to trust you. And I think that's so much of what has happened with the, the vaccines is is that people who are, who are not taking the vaccine, they have a real root base level of distrust in the public health bureaucracy and the media to tell them the truth because the media have not told them the truth. And I think this is true even so far as, for example, risk factors and, and how exactly people differentiate based on age and health status. And they've done polls with the American public asking them, how likely do you think you are to die from, from COVID-19 broadly? And people are off by a factor of somewhere between 10 and 100. Mm -hmm. uh, and, if, and if you ask people based on their age, they're off by way more than that. And so, you know, that, that is really a problem because what that also leads to is this reactionary feeling like, okay, well, if they say, if they say to do X, I'm going to do Y. And so, well, mm, X might be right, right? So two things can be true at once. The public health bureaucracy sucks. And also the vaccines are extraordinarily effective and you should totally go get them, right? I mean, <laughs> like these two things are, are, you can hold them in your mind at the same exact time. And then when you're asked, you know, why you would get the vaccine, I think it's fair to say, listen, I know what the IFR is for people in my age bracket. The IFR for people in my age bracket, the infection fatality rate, uh, is higher, significantly higher than any fatality rate that's been established for the vaccines. The prospect of me getting, for example, uh, myocarditis from the vaccine uh, is significantly actually lower from the vaccine than it would be if I got the if I got COVID itself for my age bracket. The same may not hold true for kids under 12 because we really don't have any data about that. And one of the things that we do know about kids under 18 is that kids under 18 are not dying from this. So, you know, the, the, but the refu th this comes up in the masking context too. I mean, there was an entire article in New York Magazine the other day about how there is literally no serious evidence that mask mandates with regard to children in school are effective. 
And then you hear constantly on the news that if you're anti-mask mandate, if you don't want to take your five-year-old and put him in mask and send him to school, because first of all, kids can't wear masks properly. They suck at it. They, I mean, I have three kids, seven and five, and then one. And the, the seven and five-year-old, like they're constantly picking at the mask, taking it off, putting it in their pocket, spitting on it, eating, putting it back on, right? Like the cloth masks themselves are not nearly as effective as, for example, an N95. You're not going to make a kid wear an N95. And yet there's this perspective that's cropped up that if you don't want to mask your kid, it's because you want children to die. And it's just completely evidence-free. And so people are reacting to that by being like, well, screw all of this. Mm -hmm. I just screw all of it. I'm not going to listen to anything you guys have to say. And again, I think that that's the worst of all available worlds. Um, but it's only the worst of all avail available worlds by a little bit, because I think the second worst of all available worlds is listen to everything they have to say. <laughs> so uh, they, may, they may even be equivalently dumb. Right. That's the hard part again. And not to, you know, we're not, we're not doing a Havrusa Talmud study, but, uh, the, the point is to not go too far to the left or to the right. And they didn't mean politically, as they say, uh, back then, <clears throat> I don't think Moshe Rabbeinu was a, was a Democrat or a Republican. Um, and by the way, thank you for using one of your stock phrases. Two things can be true at once. In my household, whenever Ben says that we drink two cups of wine. Uh, so thank you for, for inebriating us uh, so early in the morning. Um, Merriam-Webster, the source of all scientific wisdom and knowledge, defines authoritarian as of or relating to favoring blind submission to authority, which means in some cases that there is an impulse. There's an, uh, there's an impulse to be a follower, to be blindly led. And I wonder about that, uh, how, again, you know, this, this, uh, this, this notion that, that, you know, it's, it's the hardest thing to really split the difference between, um, you know, knowing when to obey and, when, and knowing when to not obey. But I think their secondary definition of or favoring concentration of power in a leader or an elite, not constitutionally responsible to the people. I think that's almost more appropriate for this book. This book I agree about, that. Yeah, is about all the different ways, the modalities in which our lives are, you know, are, are governed. And yet, again, I always have to push back with respect uh, to you, my friend Ben. Uh, I've, in the last year, have had on Michael Shermer. Uh, I've had on Dave Rubin. I've had on, uh, let me see, all my list of past guests. Um, your friend, your, your boss, I think, Michael Knowles. Uh, I've had on uh, yeah, Dennis. All these people have books out. And they're all about the suppression of free speech. And, and I wonder, you know, how can we as, or, or, you know, how, how, how can we take uh, you authors seriously, those that decry the awful suppression, the, the, the jackboots coming down. And when you guys are so successful and, and almost making the uh, New York Times bestseller list in the case of Michael Knowles, uh, how, how can we really take that seriously, that, that he is suppressed freedom of speech? He's left speechless. What do you have to say to critics that say, come on, you guys are overdoing it? So my, my freedom of speech has absolutely not been suppressed. And let me make that clear from the very outset. My freedom of speech has not been suppressed. There have been sort of attempts informally to do that, right? It required 600 police officers at Berkeley for me to speak at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, my, my free speech, listen, I'm, thank God, I'm, we have a very successful company. A lot of people listen to the show. The, the problem is actually for, I think, the person who's not in politics. I think, and, and I talk about this in the book, I, I think that there are a lot of people out there who are working for a corporation that is not political, ostensibly. And then they get a, a note from their boss on a particular political matter. And now they're expected to mirror the priorities of their boss. And if they don't, they're going to be fired or they're going to be held in low esteem. Or you've got, you know, the, the you know, normal American who's not in the business of politics who posts something on Facebook and all of a sudden it blows up and their business is being boycotted. 
Uh, or you have the normal person whose friends won't talk to them, family won't talk to them anymore because they voted for the wrong person. I mean, this sort of stuff is extremely common. As far as top-down refusal to uh, allow my voice to get out there, Mm. uh, let's put it this way. There are institutions that have attempted to censor, or there's been pressure inside institutions to censor even me, right? We saw earlier this year when I wrote the Politico playbook, and 200 staffers had a phone call with the heads of Politico complaining that I was allowed to even besmirch the the sacred playbook, this actually resulted, ironically, in the formation of a, a nascent union at Politico. So I'm very eager to uh, to be seen as a union leader over at Politico. Frankly, <laughs> I think that, that that's exciting. I'm, I'm I'm a labor leader now, uh, and I'm fully happy to take credit for the unionization of Politico's workforce. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it sort of differs institution by institution. Uh, this book is not primarily about governmental authoritarianism, though I think that's obviously a threat. It's much more about sort of informal social authoritarianism, uh, and that I think we all do feel. And the the, the argument that I've heard so often. Uh, is that if it's not the government, it doesn't matter. And that's obviously untrue for the vast majority of Americans for whom the institutions they deal with most on a daily basis are not the government, right? It's their, it's their, co- it's their company. It's the church they go to. It's the scientific experts they hear on TV. It's the, it's the sporting events that they consume, right? All of those institutions are cramming down a particular viewpoint. Uh, and if you refuse to acquiesce to the viewpoint, there are some pretty severe social consequences. Now, listen, there's a fine line between having an open and robust debate and the attempt to, for example, mobilize people against your political opponent's business and thus to destroy it. And, and I think that that line is crossed pretty frequently these days. What do you think about this reaction to the non-governmental you know, forces uh, that are at work? Uh, I'm thinking in particular of the private spaceflight uh, endeavors of you know, Bezos and Branson and Musk uh, and how they're almost villainized. Uh, and I'm looking at these people and I'm saying, NASA has a budget, I don't know if you know this, Ben, but NASA's budget is less than what people spend on lipstick every year. Now, you're, you're a remarkably handsome man, being in my, uh, you know, compared to me, of course, but, uh, but that lipstick budget's, you know, $20 billion, and yet if you ask a normal person, they spend billions and half the GDP goes to NASA. No, they don't. They're just remarkably successful. And I wonder, you know, what is this, you know, reaction to the to the non-authoritarians? I, I don't even know if there's a name. I'm going to get into your neologism, uh, ultra-crepidarianism. I can finally use that in Scrabble without embarrassment. What do you make of the hostility from Robert Reich, my my uh, my fellow colleague at, at that fine institution up north, UC Berkeley? What, what what do you make of this this vilification almost of ways to save the government money? I mean, they've they've reduced the cost of private spaceflight and, and of of commercial spaceflight by order of magnitude. Why are people so resistant to efforts to to um, save the government money? I mean, shouldn't that- Well, I mean, frankly, I don't, I don't think it has anything to do with saving the government money. I think they could spend their money on literally anything and they would still be decried for their wealth unless they, you know, sign a payout to a particular approved organization. Uh, it, what they're really angry at is that Jeff Bezos is rich. I mean, if Jeff Bezos were not rich, they wouldn't be angry at him. It has nothing to do with what he does with his own money. Mm-hmm. I mean, frankly, I think that it's very cool, both that he is very wealthy and that he used that money to do something really awesome in developing new technologies that human beings haven't been able to develop before. That's a that's a pretty amazing thing. Same thing with Elon Musk. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm utterly confused why people are upset about this, except that I think there's a root jealousy that has been inculcated by a political elite that says that if somebody is worth, quote unquote, too much money, this means anything they do from here on out is bad. They were good people until they made a lot of money. Then they made a lot of money and they became bad. And I think this has infected, frankly, the whole society. I think that there's, I mean, if you go back to the 1930s, there, there was a feeling about people who were wealthy, which is that I would also like to be one of them, which is why people, I mean, if you look at the lines, like the bread lines during the Great Depression, right, a horrifying time in American history economically, people on the bread lines were wearing suits and they're wearing suits and hats and ties in the bread line. 
And now you have billionaires who are attempting to dress like homeless people because what you aspire to be today is a person who does not take stock of their wealth, right? If you if you're really cool with the people, then you can never show that you're wealthy. Listen, more, honestly, one of the things there, there are many things I found not charming about Trump. One of the things that I found absolutely charming about Trump is that he was like, "Yeah, I'm rich." So, I am. Yes, good. I mean, like, really, we need more of that because I would like more people to be rich. I'd like more people to openly aspire to that. And it's funny, I, honestly, there are parts of American culture where this actually is not rejected, right? For example, rap culture really glorifies making a lot of money. I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I think making a lot of money, if you're engaging in a bunch of consensual transactions with others, and then you are saying, I made a lot of money and I hope you do do, I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that that's a perfectly good thing. But there's this sort of embarrassment that American society now inculcates about success that is really antithetical to, to encouraging people to pursue that success. There's this notion that Jeff Bezos is, quote unquote, the privileged. If you look at Jeff Bezos' life story, that dude did not grow up privileged. Right. right? If, if, you, if you look at Steve Jobs' life story, these are people who did not grow up you know, in the heart of luxury. They made something of themselves. And yes, of course, they had people who helped them because we all have people who help us along our way, no question. And we should all seek to help others along their way. But th this, this kind of stark divide between how we call people who are wealthy, the privileged versus the quote unquote underprivileged, it seems to me that, that we actually have to define what the privilege is before we determine whether somebody is privileged or underprivileged. Right. And then and the notion, you know, it smacks against the notion of gratitude or hakar satov, as we say. Um, and I think that's dangerous, you know, this notion that if everybody's if we level by the way, they, they never like talk about how much LeBron James makes in a day or right. <laughs> it's yep. always Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson and Elon Musk. It's it's I don't know why, but but for anyway, they're always, you know, they're always this famous, you know, saying, you know, who cares if it works in, in practice? Does it work in theory? You know, that that's the question we should have. Would you go to space, Ben, if they had Glot Tang? Um, I would go to space regardless of whether they had Glot Tang. I mean, like the space is is awesome. I've I've been trying to convince my wife that once once it gets safe enough. Yeah. Um, where I, I, where, you know, there's not a one in 10 chance of the thing blowing up. <laughs> uh, once that happens, I'm, I'm totally up for it. I mean, uh, there are, there are a couple of developments I'm really up for. I'm up for that. I'm really up for a lot of the talk about how this is going to lower travel time. Mm. Like, I just think it'd be unbelievable to be able to fly from like Florida to Australia and it'd take an hour and a half. Like that'd be unbelievable. Yeah. And you'd get a, finally get a good night's sleep uh, when you're on the road. Uh, you'd lose a sponsor though. I don't think, you know, your mattress company will support a zero gravity mattress. Um, I want to ask a, a question about, uh, another, I'm going to read another definition from Miriam Webster, Merriam Webster, uh, dictionary. It's ultra crepidarianism. And the definition is this word does not exist. Uh, did you make this word up Ben? cause I, I had never heard it before you and I, I'm a, I'm a master of the most just, uh, what is ultra crepidarianism and, and am I guilty of it? Uh, I started to think I might be guilty of this malady. I mean, I think that, that all of us are guilty of it a little bit, but ultra crepidarianism is the idea that you are speaking outside of your area of expertise. Uh, and I just thought there really ought to be a German term for it, but there really isn't. So we'll just have to use the, the English ultra crepidarian, ultra crepidarian is a, is a word. Uh, I call it the, uh, uh, I call it almost a philosophy, ultra crepidarianism. Um, but the, the, it's a phenomenon for sure, uh, mm. that, and, and this I discussed in sort of the purview of science is that you have this vast attempt in the in the field of science for people to speak out of areas that they actually know anything about. Uh, and you saw this largely in the public health debate right over the last year where suddenly we moved from, you know, what are disease vectors and how do they work? And what are the, epidemi the epidemi epidemiological studies say to if you protest for George Floyd, you definitely won't get the virus. And it was like and this and racism is a public health problem. I said, well, if you're defining racism as a public health problem then we're not talking about public health anymore, right? We're just, we're, we're not. You can talk about racism as a problem, but talking about it as a public health problem, broadly speaking, 
is now saying that everything is a public health problem, which I think is sort of the point. Uh, once you start, it, it has a couple of effects. One is that you have a bunch of people talking about stuff they don't know about. And the second is that when you broaden your field out to include everything, people start to start seeing, start seeing their own perspective as part of your field. Right? You'll start to see people saying unscientific things and then say those things in the name of science, even though they're not scientists. Right? The science says X, and X is just a political view that I happen to hold. Okay, well, maybe not. Maybe science doesn't say that. And also, when you cite a scientist, the scientist has to be talking about, like, you are in the sciences. I don't think that means that you are an excellent cook. Right? Now, you could theoretically broaden out the possibilities of science to include you know, how the chemistry of cooking works. And you could probably talk about that all day long. But I'm not going to assume that you know how to cook an egg because you're a scientist. And yet, because science is the most valuable institution that we have in terms of just pure human prosperity— there, there is this willingness to grant a halo effect to science where we're like, okay, well, if a scientist said it and the dude's wearing a white coat, I guess I'll just do what he says now, even though it makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, on this uh, frame, I did a video called Follow the Science, uh, which I argue just that, that you should not, you know, for Prager University, that you shouldn't, you know, this this notion that, that you know, because someone has a PhD in chemistry, and I, I pointed out, you know, Fritz Haber who is the father of, uh, of of fertilizer that powered our breakfast food this morning? He also invented chemical we- weapons, and he won the Nobel Prize in, in chemistry after World War One when these weapons were used. And he personally witnessed the the devastation that they wrought. So, listening to him on social policy or even warfare uh, is a tragic mistake. And and as I quote, you know, in the in that video, Richard Feynman said, "Science is actually the belief in the ignorance of experts, not the wisdom of experts." You know, the word science, as I pointed out to your uh, friend Michael Knowles, it doesn't mean wisdom, it means knowledge. And uh, wisdom is, is knowing not to, you know, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Um, but I wonder, you know, as Galileo said, um, in the sciences, the authority of thousands of opinions is not worth as much once as one spark of reason from an individual man. And I wonder, you know, the book about authoritarianism, um, when we look to science, is there a danger in kind of uh, venerating science too much in the sense that scientists have all the traits, I always say, scientists are like children. You know, they're curious, they're, they're whimsical, they're, they're intellectual, you know, they, they're, they just want to know everything, they're passionate, they don't play well with others, they don't share their toys, they're jealous, they're petty, you know. We have a lot of negative traits in science. Doesn't mean don't listen to science, I'm not antagonistic. Obviously, I've devoted my life to it. Um, but what is there not a danger? We do have authority bias. We have prestige bias. We have confirmation bias. We have all these biases in not the science, TM, Ben Shapiro in 2021, uh, but uh, in science itself. We have all these biases, prejudices, lacunae in our character. Why, why should we venerate science so much? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is why, you know, venerating science as a process that is capable of producing useful results to people is totally worthwhile. But even that, you know, has its limits, meaning that I feel like people do the same thing with economics. They'll say, well, economics doesn't fill the, the needs of the human soul. And I keep thinking to myself, right, did, did it ever say it was going to? Like, well, <laughs> why would it? Uh, and, and it's the same thing with science, except that a lot of scientists think that science is supposed to fill the need in the human soul, right? This is my kind of long-running debate with Sam Harris. I don't think that you can get from is to ought. I don't think that you can no. look at the scientific facts of, of existence and then immediately go from there to a cohesive moral framework that wasn't actually kind of rooted in just Judeo-Christian morals that you're now guising as humanism. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I think that there's a real mistake that is made by by folks uh, in science to declare that everything is science and also by people who are not scientific to simply grant credibility to that because once you slap the label science on something, we're, we're all supposed to believe it. And there, there's also this, this bizarre and stupid reductionism where 
people will give very complex results, but then they think that the public can't handle the results. And so they reduce it down to some sort of headline that actually isn't true. Right. Uh, you see this all the time in science. You see, you see it, you saw it with COVID a lot, um, but you certainly see it with global warming as well, right? Where, where they will say, people will say global warming is a, is a threat to how we live over the course of the next century. That's a very broad statement. It's a very broad statement. Then you get into the specifics and you look at it and you say, okay, well, it's probably going to lead to, for example, more intense hurricanes, but it doesn't necessarily have a, an impact on frequency of hurricanes. And it's unclear if the damage done by hurricanes is actually due to the increased winds of the hurricane or the fact that the target has now increased because people are building more on these coasts, right? And when you look at you know the, the even the, the impact of, of global warming over the course of time, the IPCC itself has a very, like a rather broad range of how much the temperature could change over the course of the next century. It's like anywhere from 1.5 degrees Celsius to 4.5 degrees Celsius, which is a huge range. And when you point out all of this, or when you point out that, that certain solutions that are undertaken in the name of science are very unlikely to, to have any sort of serious effect on the climate, say the Kyoto Protocols or the Paris Peace Accords, when you point that out, then people say you're anti-science. And it's like, well, no, I'm using the exact same sources as you are. I'm just making a different political argument. But this is now considered anti-science on the basis of what exactly? And you know that that's a that's a dangerous thing because then again you get we are getting to the point very quickly where when institutions are misused people lose trust in the institution. If you lose trust in science as as a value, uh, then that's going to have some really dire downstream effects. Uh, frankly, I think that you're seeing it for a lot of folks who refuse to take the vaccine not for any scientific reason, but just because they just don't trust the institutions promulgating uh, the, the sort of science talk that isn't really scientifically rooted. All right. You see that a lot. Every I joke in my book, uh, you know, every four years we find out from 70 Nobel Prize, uh, prize winners, you know, which which, you know, Democrat we should vote for. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it becomes, you know, what is someone who studies low temperature superconductivity or string theory? You know, what do they have to teach us about, uh, you know, who should be the, you know, the, the leader of the free world, the most powerful uh, country in human history? I want to talk about big tech now. Obviously, you're a no, you know, you're a huge fan of technology. Uh, you, uh, you know, you can eat like a king nowadays. You can live better than a king. You can get a chauffeur to come to your house with a push of a button. You can get a home cooked meal, uh, you know, from, from your favorite, you know, place down the street delivered to you from your mother, or you can get a restaurant cooked meal. If you're so inclined, uh, you can get medical diagnoses. Uh, I believe you met your wife on Tinder. Uh, these are all social media and other you know tools to communicate. You have more reach than you know almost anybody on Earth. I had Neil deGrasse Tyson on my show uh, a couple months back, and I said, Neil, you're the most famous scientist in human history because you know 40 million people know who you are right now, and you can you know it's not like you're 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 you know uh, you've passed away. And he's like, no, no, no. But the influence that technology confers is this double-edged sword. As the Bible says, is this worth it? Is the is this tool? Because it seems to me, you know, Twitter is the most efficient tool ever devised for spreading lashon hara, you know, evil speech. Uh, how do we how do we balance the technology authority that is inherent in all these apps? Because we love it, we need this technology, and we live better because of it. How do you balance those two competing demands? For sure, and and I think that that's particularly true with a lot of these services that are really designed to be kind of addictive. I mean, the fact is that when they designed Twitter, for example, that little kind of thwip that you hear every time you refresh uh, is designed to be almost a Pavlovian response mm -hmm. for you, that you get like a little dopamine hit every time you do that. Yeah. Um, and that's why you find yourself doing it all the time. And so for me, I just took Twitter directly off my phone, right? If I, if I want to be on Twitter, I'm going to have to be on my computer and sit and think about what I'm typing mm -hmm. as opposed to just being on my phone and just randomly throwing things out there, which has been, I think, beneficial for my life. And the, the answer to this is like the answer to, you know, all other problems of technological systems that both 
make our lives better, but also provide for the possibility of greater sin. And that is you really have to create prophylactic rules for yourself and there he is. And this has been true about literally every technology ever developed, right? Or, or pretty much all of them. Uh, that if you are like the, the car made possible the ability to have an affair in another city, right? <laughs> like if you're, if you're, if you're horsebound, basically the group of people that you could go out with and, and sleep with was limited to the distance that you could take your horse within a couple of hours. Yeah, it wasn't like, all that really far. Genghis Khan, it really was bad for him, the horse. Right. Well, he, yeah, he, he made a yeah, he, he had unique success in this respect. But but the but the car and and the plane, right? All of these things enable sin in ways that the horse does not. You know, does that mean that the car and the and the plane are bad? No, of course, the car and the plane are, are wonderful, wonderful creations. What it does mean is that as a species, we have tended to confuse. This goes back to your last question a little bit. We have tended to confuse technological and scientific development with moral development, and they are not the same thing whatsoever. And in fact, as technology gets more sophisticated, there is a, a significant call on the human capacity to be more moral. And we have largely shirked the call. We have insane levels. Uh, while we talk about the level of privacy that's not uh, available online, and you should all get express VPN for this, the, the reality is that you can now partake in all sorts of sin from the privacy of your own home that you would have to go out into public to do before. And so this has enabled sin on record levels. So this means that you actually have to be prophylactic in your own acknowledgement of your own sinful capacity. And yet we also live in a society that says that to even mention the capacity for sin is to be shaming people. You don't want to sin shame somebody. You don't want to make somebody feel bad about themselves. And so, mm -hmm. you know, with, with greater technology comes a greater need for, for us to be reflective about how we act. And that's difficult. I mean, yeah. nobody likes being reflective. It's no fun. Except for me on Yom Kippur. That's, that's, the only <laughs> that's right. You're fasting. Your Yom Kippur app has uh, saved many. It actually allowed me to drop five pounds uh, from my double chin to my backside. Um, I want to ask now about another thing near and dear to my heart, and I know to your heart too, in all seriousness, academia. Uh, you're a scholar. You clearly, uh, you know, thoroughly love the life of the mind. And, and on one hand, you know, academia hasn't really changed much in a thousand years since the first university in Bologna, Italy in 1080. You have, the, you know, some guy scratching on a piece of rock with another piece of rock, and and we call that learning. And almost nothing has changed in that millennium uh, since. Um, I wonder, you know, are, are, is there something in store? You know, you've got this media corporation now. You've got, uh, you're now doing entertainment. You've obviously been doing news. I wonder if, the, by the way, is Daily Wire planning like a national The Science Foundation? With academia, do you see it ripe for disruption? Do you see this, you know... As you talk about in the book, you talk about the um, the uh, what uh, the varsity blues scandal. You know, we had these actresses and, and actors getting their daughters into college that didn't want to go to college and didn't even need to take the SAT for the college. They wanted to go to Juilliard, one of them. You know, she didn't even need to go take the SATs, let alone be coached illicitly in doing so. So anyway, what do you see as the uh, opportunities for disruption in academia, which you, you spend not an inconsiderable amount of time in the book uh, devoting to? So this is one place where I think the Internet's really going to help. So first of all, you see a tremendous appetite for people who do want to learn online, right? I mean, you have things like the Great Courses Plus mm -hmm. uh, or Hillsdale online programs and people, or PragerU for that matter, mm -hmm. people who are looking for information on a regular basis uh, and, and want it. And I think that as more and more colleges move online, I think the pandemic helped accelerate this. I think that you're going to see alternatives start to form that are a hell of a lot cheaper than hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. In order to effectuate that, you're going to need businesses to stop looking at the Ivy League credential as though it is the be-all, end-all. And this is coming from somebody who went to an Ivy League law school. Like, I don't actually think that, that it's necessary for somebody to even go to college in order to be an excellent employee. And I think there will come a point where smart first movers in the space are going to start seeking good employees in places outside sort of the traditional well-trod paths. Right there, There's going to be somebody 
who instead decided to get their degree in something in a year and a half in an online program by a Harvard extension or something. Mm-hmm. And then people look at that and go, well, that's good enough for me. They also got a 1500 on their SAT. So I know they're smart. And I think the colleges, unless you're in the actual hard sciences, uh, I think the colleges have largely become uh, a sorting mechanism. And, and the sorting mechanism is a very expensive sorting mechanism that puts people severely into debt. But I don't think that just because you got a poli side degree from UCLA the way that I did, I don't think that means that you're necessarily going to be a better employee than a person who got the same score I did on the SAT, graduated at the same age, and didn't get a poli side degree from UCLA. I wonder, though, I, I mean, I'm actually working on a project to take the uh, written word of Galileo for the first time and make it into an artificial intelligent learning engine uh, because there's uh, never been something like that. And why learn, you know, uh, celestial mechanics from me when you can learn it from Isaac Newton or Galileo, uh, as good as I think I am at teaching it. But then it w- opens up to me this concern that, you know, with machine learning and artificial intelligence, do you see, you know, kind of a, a you know, a very brief calm before that storm when now it's going to be, if you thought it was at scale before the spying, the, the authoritarianism, once we get, you know, supercomputers, quantum computers uh, in charge of the algorithms, are we just toast? Um, I mean, we may very well be. But I, again, I think that as with, as I was saying, with all technology comes, you know, y- we have to have a lot of humility when we approach these technologies uh, and, and recognize that we're going to have to set limits on ourselves because, uh, you know, w- when it comes to the, the vagaries of machine learning, you know better than I do. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I tend to be sort of a technological optimist as opposed to, you know, somebody who believes that Skynet is coming and it's going to kill all of us and that the, the machines are going to wake up and decide that uh, we're their overlords and it's time to kill everyone. If that happens, then I guess I'll, you know, just be among the ruins and won't have much to say about it. Um, but, but as long as that doesn't happen, then the increased capacity seems to me to open a lot of vistas for people. But, you know, there, there, are, there are consummate downsides, obviously, in how this stuff is used. So we're going to need a lot better controls, uh, governmental mm-hmm. or otherwise, although I don't trust the government to control itself in, in these areas. Right. And building on that and technology uh, as a whole, uh, I think I was uh, uh, able to connect you with Michael Saylor, who is one of the biggest uh, Bitcoin proponents on the on the face of the planet. And uh, I was glad to make that connection. Uh, but I want to talk about disruption there, because we saw recently, um, you know, and my condolence has been that they took down your favorite site, OnlyFans. Uh, where you have, you know, one of the most popular accounts in uh, in, in Yiddishkeit. Um, it's just but- me wearing tuxedos. That's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's you and stylized keep us through gas. Uh, and that's the only way you can get it. It's join Ben's OnlyFans account. But anyway, they took it down, right? And those are credit cards. And we had Amazon Web Services take down, you know, Parler and, and so forth. Um, do you see opportunities? I don't know if you got into this with Michael uh, Sailor, but uh, I know many of my audience is very curious about what can things like the decentralization Yep. of technology, the de-authoritarianism of both blockchain and Bitcoin as a means of transaction that's immune from government, you know, snooping in some level. I'm not going to get into the details, but but also for things like academia and even communication uh, peer-to-peer, not relying on, you know, Twitter could turn off your account tomorrow, as, as we know, right? So what do you see? Are you optimistic about that? Are there any potentials that, that you're int- most interested in in that space? In tech- yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super pumped up about that. So the, the decentralization of of money, you know, via Bitcoin, uh, you know, the the effectuation of that technology in other spheres, you know, decentralization of informational dissemination, right, which has sort of been done, but on the old mechanisms, just like money used to be done on the old mechanisms, right? That's what PayPal was. Uh, instead, the sort of next generation stuff, where it will be completely peer to peer, and you won't need an intermediary to do any of that. Uh, everything will just sort of live in the ether and be verified not by a centralized company saying that you are you, but by a, a blockchain technology, for example. 
Like that stuff's going to be really cool. And it's also going to allow for a, a lot to, to thrive. Now, that also is going to mean that bad guys thrive. But, you know, that that is just the risk of liberty is that bad people do bad things. And, and I, that's a risk that I'm willing to take. I, I think that the attempt over and over and over again, for example, to cast the bad people out from Facebook has not resulted in the bad people not being online. It's resulted in them being at, at 4chan and then 8chan and then presumably 16chan. And they'll, they'll just keep chanting it up. And and at a certain point, you know, they go underground and they go to places where and, and the government follows them. And all of that, you know, maybe that's effective. Maybe that's not. But but it seems to me that the greater risk to me is a centralized authority telling you what you can and cannot say online, for example, or what financial transactions you can and cannot pursue. Right? If credit card companies, I think, in the near future might be in the position where they just start banning particular credit card users because they don't like who they are. There was a report over the weekend that maybe one of the credit card companies was doing that to Michael Flynn. You know, that, that scares the living hell out of me. Like these are neutral service providers. And so the potential to, you know, just have a Bitcoin wallet, for example, where it's not up to Bitcoin. It's not up to Coinbase to decide if you can and cannot have a wallet. And I mean, frankly, they can't. They, they, they don't even have the capacity to, to determine, you know, whose wallet it is really. Um, because, you know, theoretically, if you're, if you've got, you know, Bitcoin in the name of a code, then the code owns the wallet. Mm -hmm. if, if that's, if that's the case, then it removes a lot of these obstacles. I'm very much in favor of, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this since I got kind of into Bitcoin over the last couple of months, three months. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, I'm very into the idea of radical decentralization at this point, because we've seen radical centralization in corporate life. We've seen radical centralization in informational dissemination. We've seen radical dissemination in terms of money supply. And so if we can reverse a lot of those trends, I think that'd be an excellent thing. And in terms of the, you know, the media outreach, et cetera, uh, I, I do think that there's incredible opportunities for this technology. And even in science, I think you could do things where you could, um, you know, somebody has some discovery or some, you know, vaccine, but they don't, they're not ready for it to be released. They could stake it on the blockchain, show proof of work and, uh, and, 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 you know, and this could be something that could transform science as well. I think we're, yeah, we're definitely in the early days there. And, uh, and, and I'm excited to see what happens there. Speaking of, you know, going in, into the, you know, the realm of, of, of media that you are so, uh, so expert in, there's a famous Yiddish saying, I'm sure you've heard it. Um, you know, he who stands in the middle of the road gets hit by both sides of the traffic. In other words, uh, the fact that you are so, um, courageous, you know, some say brazen, uh, do you take more risks now? Would you say, Ben, as you're, you know, as your celebrity increases the network effect, you know, you have this, this wide ranging influence now that you, you know, probably couldn't have dreamed of just 10 years ago when I first started following you. Um, you know, do you think that there's, uh, that there's a limit or that there's, you know, some, some restraint on who you are that will, you know, allows you to take risks that maybe some of the readers couldn't, you know, if, if, if one of my students, you know, writes me and says, you know, I, I can't say this to my professor in class, but I, you know, maybe I can say it to you. I, I get messages like that all the time. Um, you know, he or she could get, could get, uh, repercussions. Uh, and, and yet you, you, you know, make your living on having an opinion and being paid to do so quite handsomely as we know from ExpressVPN. Uh, but <laughs> I want to know, like, um, have you become more bold or, or have you decided to just take more, more chances now? Or, or are you still the same old Ben, you know, that I listened to on, uh, what was it? Truth Revolt uh, a decade ago. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think there's, there's some both. So on the one hand, I'm more prominent. That means I can withstand more risk. So that's, that's great. It means I can say things that, you know, I can get away with things that maybe other people can't. Like I'm, if, if I have strong feelings about vaccines, I'm going to say what the strong feelings about vaccines are. And if it ticks people off, then, you know, so be it. I try to, I try to couch everything I say in terms of data. So that if people want to get mad at the data I'm using, that's okay. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I've always 
tried to approach things from a data-driven point of view, except when maybe I was 17 or 18 and you're just, you know, attention-seeking, uh, which is what people do when they're teenagers. Unfortunately, when you're 17 or 18 and writing a public column, uh, the attention-seeking is on your permanent record. So yeah. in any case, uh, it's it's not quite, you know, now, obviously, I'm, I'm able to say things that I think many other people aren't able to say uh, on politics and networks in both directions, uh, although for, you know, for a lot of people, I'd say it's mostly from the right. Uh, the the you know, counterintuitive effect is that if you are you know very prominent and if you speak to a lot of people, this means that if you make a mistake, everybody notices. Right. Uh, and so this means that you have to be very, very careful in how you approach this stuff. And that's the stuff of nightmares, right? <laughs> now, like I literally will have nightmares where I get on the air and I say, sing, say something that's just totally untrue. And I'll wake up in a cold sweat like, oh, God, I hope I didn't say that. And it's, you know. And that, that I try to be extremely careful about what I say on air, at least factually speaking. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to opinion, you get impassioned, you say things, you fly off the cuff, that sort of stuff happens. But you know, you, you really do have to be careful in the sort of information you disseminate. And even in your approach, right? There, there are certain sort of there there is a an Overton window. I think the Overton window right now in American life is far too narrow, but it does exist. Uh, and uh, and you know, seeking to say the right thing uh, while not triggering, for example, the overlords at, at YouTube to to take you down. Uh, is is always sort of an interesting balance that you have to draw because you know people might might say that that's self interested. Well, you know, if nobody can actually hear my show, it's not just self interested; it's listener interested. Right. My listeners still want to hear the show. Mm-hmm. And along those lines, and because it's the eve of Yom Kippur, um, I want to ask you about you know the we talked about sin and sinning at scale with the uh, rise of technology. Uh, what about teshuva? What about repentance? What about atonement? Um, are there opportunity? Can we atone for anything? I mean, uh, is is there is there room? Not just in the Overton window, which I think of as you know is kind of remote from most of my listeners, but you know they're not on CNN or in the New York Times, which who published one of your uh, your obituary uh, eulogizing Rush Limbaugh. I mean, I thought that was a very good, positive sign. Um, but anyway, is there room for teshuva or, or you know repentance, or is it is it cast in the amber of the blockchain of of cancellation and and recrimination? Uh, so I think it depends from whom. So there, there's a certain group of people whose sole goal in life is just to extirpate you from public life. And for those people, there's no repentance. But I think for most other people, there there really is. And I think Americans generally want to give people second chances and allow them back through the door. I think that there's been an attempt right now to basically say that whatever sins you've committed are on your permanent record. You can never come back from that. And I'm actively trying to fight back against that, right? I mean, like, I think that if you said something that was bad and now you want to, and now you've repented and now you want to come back to public life, I think that we should try to make some pretty significant efforts to, to allow that to happen because we ought to incentivize teshuva. I've done some of that stuff publicly myself. Right? I mean, I'm the only columnist I know of, I think, ever, uh, who has put up like an entire list of the things I think I've said over the course of the last 20 years that I think are wrong or bad, and then try to explain what I was trying to say or what I failed to say or whether I was just being an idiot, right? No, well, you uh, gave you know. Media Matters a kill list. That, that was actually... <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, I effectively went back through it and I was like, okay, here's all the stuff that I've said over the last 20 years. Here's a really bad tweet. Here's what I meant by it. It didn't come out that way and it's bad. Right? And I, I think that that's a useful thing. I think we should all, you know, do that from time to time. Uh, there have been times when I've done this interpersonally. Mm-hmm. I remember that, uh, you know, way back when, like when I was a kid, maybe 17, 18 years old, I tweeted something that wasn't particularly nice about uh, Rabbi David Wolpe in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and f- I got, and Barry Weiss, who uh, I was friends with, she said, you know, you don't know Rabbi Wolpe and you really should like meet with him. And I called him up and uh, we got together and he expl- he expressed to me how upset he'd been by that tweet. And I was like, yeah, that was, you know, at that point, 15 years ago. And I didn't realize that, you know, that I was young and stupid and I'm, I'm sorry about that. 
And he said, right, but it's one thing for you to apologize to me in person. And, you know, that tweet is still out there. And so I went on Twitter and I put out a tweet saying, you know, sometimes you just get people wrong and you get things wrong. And I apologize for this. That was wrong. It was like 10, 15 years later. So uh, I think that, you know, apologizing at scale is very often effective. And, and, uh, you know, you, as Donald Trump says, you try to be in a position where you don't have to apologize, but, uh, if, if you do, then it does give you the opportunity to do so, uh, in, in pretty large measure. And uh, every Donald Trump or John Kerry impersonation by Ben earns somebody a glass of whiskey in my house. Thank you, Ben, for that. Um, speak, yeah, there is a famous Mushal story of a man who disparages his rabbi and then goes and asks for repentance and forgiveness. And the rabbi says, yeah, bring a pillow. And the guy says, all right, I'll bring a feather pillow. What you, I mean, what's it for? The, guy cut, his, the rabbi says, cut it open. Let the wind scatter the feathers to the four winds. And the guy says, oh, thank you, rabbi, for forgiving me. He said, no, you're not forgiving yet. Now go out and collect all the feathers. And I, I think that's really true. It is harder to, you know, put the toothpaste back in the tube, uh, as, as they say, than, than to squeeze it out in the first place. A lightning round has, has uh, come upon us, Ben. I know you only have five minutes left, so I'm going to play the lightning round of Into the Impossible, as we are wont to do on this podcast. Uh, reminder, we're speaking to Ben Shapiro, uh, proprietor of the Ben Shapiro Show, uh, the Sunday special, which I've been honored to be a part of. And I, I know I apologize in advance to all the, all the, all the many OnlyFans that I'm going to lose. But, uh, but you know what? I, I love talking to Ben. I learn something every time I talk, every time you write a book. I'm glad I can see your hands, so I know you're not actually writing your 18th book in three years. Uh, but uh, I look forward to all your future work. Um, or is there anyone that you wouldn't talk to? on the show. I mean, not just like a Farrakhan or, or somebody like a repugnant, uh, invidious, you know, human being, but, um, is there anyone you wouldn't talk to that's you know, kind of in the public sphere or conversely, is there someone you're dying to talk to, uh, you know, and you just can't get for one reason or another? Uh, so, I mean, there, there's some people who I've tried to get on the program who I think would be really interesting to talk to. Like, I think it'd be interesting to talk to George W. Bush. Uh, mm-hmm. we haven't had that opportunity yet. Um, there's some, uh, you know, kind of more obscure professors who wouldn't be obscure in their fields, but are obscure to kind of the general public, who I think would be fun to talk to, um, to sort of, and, and you have to sort of monetize it and figure out how that works, right? Because mm-hmm. a fun conversation doesn't always mean that it pays for itself in terms of crew time or anything. Um, so that, that's, that's probably, as far as people who I wouldn't talk to, uh, outside of the affair, outside of, you know, the Farrakhan crowd and, and, you know, people who I, like, because you're talking publicly, one of the things that you do have to determine is whether you believe that the view is so vile that, that, airing the view itself uh, is doing a disservice because no matter how well you're about the position, you've now granted the position added credibility. Uh, and I, I don't believe that there's no such thing as the Overton window. I, I make a pretty strong distinction between the presence of an Overton window, which I, I agree with, uh, and the limits of the Overton window, which I think right now are far too too narrow. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are people who I think it's worthless to talk to where I'd be radically raising somebody's profile uh, to no purpose mm-hmm. other than to radically raise the profile of a terrible person right. uh, or a person who I think has terrible beliefs. And obviously, like, I wouldn't have on the spokesperson for the Taliban to give their point of view on on women's rights. Like, you, I, can I think their, no, <laughs> you can just go to their Twitter account. That's true. That's true. You can go to their Twitter account. Uh, so th- there's some of that. Uh, and then there are some people who, uh, you know, I, I just don't think are up for an, uh, a real conversation and who are just there to uh, to score points. And you know, well, there might be an organized debate setting where that might be useful, right? Where you say, okay, well, this is going to be, you know, rock'em, sock'em robots. We know the rules going in. Uh, but what you don't like and what I don't like is you organize a conversation and then the person comes in treating it like a boxing match. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's not right. Yeah. And so 
you, you sort of have to set the preconditions on the ground for what the conversation is going to look like. And then if somebody breaks the rules, then you have to you have to smack them. Yeah. Yeah. I believe debate is basically pointless. You, n- you never convince. Oh, that was a great Biden Trump debate that really changed my mind. Um, how do you know when you're doing a good interview? How do you know when an interview is going well? Uh, you know, what, what's running? What's the algorithm in the back of your mind in real time feedback to know that you're doing a good job or not? I mean, usually it kind of comes out in level of engagement. So a, a bad interview is, is one where I'm getting tired or bored. And, and so my, my speed of, of speaking or, or thinking starts to slow down. I start to get distracted. I have to re-ask the interviewer what the question was, <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff. Um, as far as sort of an adversarial interview, um, it, I, if I take on, uh, I've realized that the more passionate I am about topics, sometimes the worse I am at them. Uh, you know, a certain level of reserve is necessary. In the same way that, you know, a doctor wouldn't want to operate on, on a relative. I don't ask my wife to, to operate on our kids, God forbid. Um, you know, the, she's, if you're too invested in something, you tend to lose the, the necessary objectivity to having a productive conversation. And so uh, when you get to a certain level of remove, that's actually sometimes quite good for a conversation, especially if the discussion is adversarial. If you're too invested, you can get over the top. And I've had conversations like that publicly that I regret and, and things sucked. Yeah. Uh, last uh, question in the zeitgeist, uh, literally, are these uh, notions of UFOs, unidentified flying objects. You haven't had any uh, real uh, discussion of that on your show. I'm wondering, why do you think it's so much in the zeitgeist, in the spirit of the times? And what, what do we make of, uh, you know, the, its importance and, and threat, perhaps, to this country? Uh, do you think that aliens exist? Do you think they're among us? Do you think that uh, there's reason to be suspicious? Where, where, where do you come down on that? Uh, so I think aliens may exist. I do not think they are among us, unless we're talking about like animal species, because those are weird. <laughs> um, I, and uh, and do I think that they are like you know foreign objects uh, from China or something? I don't think they have that sort of tech capacity at this point. If they do, I think that we'll be the first to know. Um, so I, I'm I'm really really skeptical of all the UFO talk. Especially, have you ever seen one one of my favorite things is the map of UFO sightings. Um, so if you look at the map of UFO sightings, basically the entire United States is lit up and then the rest of the world there's nothing right it's like why why is that is it's either because the aliens are specifically and only interested in the american way of life uh and and like the simpsons or because americans are uniquely susceptible to looking up in the sky seeing things with lights on and being like i don't recognize that thing with light on i'm gonna take a picture of it and i'm gonna tell people that it was a ufo (laughs) so i don't know I'm, i'm really really skeptical of of the it's alien intelligences and they're they're hanging out but they're also not doing anything and they have to monitor us using physical objects as opposed to, you know, surveillance craft from space or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I count myself among the, the wild skeptics of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, if they do decide to serve you, they'll, they'll, they'll you know, at least fatten you up with some good kosher meal beforehand. Uh, ben Shapiro, uh, uh, longtime uh, listener, uh, second time host of you on the Into the Impossible podcast. I want to thank you. I want to wish you an easy fast. I want to wish you New Year's blessings uh, to you and your family of health and success. And I just uh, want to keep uh, giving you uh, the, the hope that you will continue in this courageous uh, stance that you take in society. I think you are uh, an extremely important figure in, in the culture and uh, in, in our world. So thank you, Ben, for being our, uh, my guest. Now, thanks so much. Bye, Ben. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. 
We appreciate hearing from you and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.